Welcome to episode 3 of Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn, and today, as promised last episode, I'm going to begin knee-deep in the swamp and try my best to find some ways out. So what is this swamp? Well, the swamp is the messy confusion we find ourselves in if we are spiritual but not religious and have the deep aspiration to experience genuine transformations through our study, our practice, our adopting of particular spiritual techniques and paths. So it is a very basic problem of knowledge. How do we know what to practice or study? On what basis do we choose path A and not B or C? What if what is good for us is different to what we actually desire. How do we judge that? If we have managed to commit to something and given it a decent crack, how do we evaluate our progress or lack thereof? How do we avoid self-deception or confirmation bias? So these are all problems of knowledge. And actually there seems to be something very important about simply recognising the swamp for what it is which implies accepting the inherent complexities and struggles and uncertainties around this, around those questions. That in itself is important. And I think a lot of spiritual but not religious people attempt to cover that up or pretend it isn't the case, pretending the swamp is some kind of clear river. But actually acknowledging the swamp of epistemic confusion is a pretty brave move. If you're in the swamp of confusion, it's very good to see this, and I think very dangerous to pretend otherwise. Nonetheless, I think it would be very paralysing to stay always within it. So this episode I'm going to put my own epistemic horizon on the line here, and state with some kind of confidence that it is indeed possible to move beyond the swamp of confusion. But it is only possible if we deploy a range of tools and learn how to use them skillfully. So this episode is about these tools. The first tool, which follows rather closely to what I was saying in the introductory episode, I'm simply going to call intellectual diligence. And it simply implies a close and careful examination of whatever it is that has caused you to take some firm steps away from that position of sceptical openness. Now, this doesn't mean that if you like yoga and you decide you want to go more deeply into it, then you have to become a scholar 
and learn Sanskrit and spend years in a library slaving away to understand the origins of early Sankhya cosmology. It just means that you take the responsibility to examine all of the different elements of your chosen path of yoga. Investigating, carefully, diligently, precisely and critically. And this would definitely include an examination of its history and also, and this is very important, an examination of the best available criticisms. And I think this happens fairly naturally for most of us in any case. That is, you know, we tend to pursue our interests and our passions. But when I say intellectual diligence, I really mean pursuing our interests and passions in a particular way. A way which is sharp and precise and critical. So to stay with the example, a student of yoga might already be very inclined to buy and read books by particular modern teachers in that tradition. Which is great. It's definitely part of what I mean by intellectual diligence. But they may not bother with the root texts in that tradition. For example, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And they may not engage with the big debates between Sankhya Yoga and the other Indian schools. They may not look into the history of yoga, both in India and in the West, inclusive of how the tradition of yoga may have changed in this process of coming from India to the West. And they're probably quite unlikely to read the best critiques of that tradition. And so I'm saying one needs to really do all of that. That's due diligence, and that's what I mean by intellectual diligence. And the point would be that doing this is insurance. It buys you knowledge and understanding, which helps situate and contextualize your practice. And it clearly helps deepen it. And I think it most certainly helps you evaluate it. So the most important element here is that you are developing the epistemic tools to be self-reliant. So these are tools of knowledge and understanding. And without them, one is really flying blind. Or to be more annoying about it, doing a downward dog without a mat. You could just slip all over the place. So to develop intellectual diligence around your spiritual pursuits and practices is simply to take definite responsibility for dispelling your own ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance in the big cosmic sense, which, as an aside, a true student of yoga would be interested in. This is the notion of avidya. I really mean it in a more down-to-earth and mundane sense. And the point is that no one else is really running the show but you. So you have to do this work. A teacher can instruct, but only you can turn that instruction into good knowledge and genuine understanding. And that implies intellectual diligence. Now, it might be the case that the kind of thing you're interested in pursuing offers different forms of knowing or understanding. Let's just call them non-intellectual modes. So, for example, in some of the dharmic or mystical traditions, something like intuitive or non-conceptual or meditative or yogic forms of knowing or apprehending. Now that's fine. I'm not saying that the intellect necessarily trumps this. 
or should overpower it. I'm just saying, whilst you're busy cultivating those other modes, you will also need intellectual diligence for the more mundane forms of knowledge connected with your chosen tradition and practices. Otherwise, to use a very Australian phrase, you really are up shit creek without a paddle. So perhaps this is also a warning, because there are indeed statements to be found in more than a few very wondrous traditions that say, you must give up that paddle. You must let go of intellectual diligence and all forms of intellectualizing. Now, be clear here, I'm not here going against that decree. My point is simply that you will need rather a lot of intellectual diligence before you're even in a position to accept that kind of advice. Which is to say, do your intellectual homework first before you accept the proposition that you must relinquish doing all intellectual homework. Because the swamp is filled with a rather large number of very pitiful people who give up the intellect for the promise of some higher mind and find they subsequently possess neither. The second tool is possibly even less sexy than the first. And I think we can all agree that intellectual diligence lacks any kind of sex appeal. Which, by the way, is kind of the point. In any case, the second very non-sexy tool I'm going to call patience. And patience has almost transitioned from a virtue to a vice in the 21st century. It's not what anyone wants to hear. People want to hear, oh, I did this practice and I started immediately feeling great bliss. Or I started this and then I went on that diet and all my health problems cleared up. Or I learned this technique and then my mind got a lot more stable and now I'm feeling really energized and happy about life. That's what we want. We want instant and quick results. Results that we can see and measure. Tangible, visceral results. Then remember the 10,000 hour rule that I mentioned last episode alongside the claim that nothing worth mastering can be mastered in an instant. So great artists, great sports people, great thinkers, great surgeons, none of them got to that place of greatness or mastery by looking for a quick fix. They got there by sheer weight of sustained application. And by sustained, I mean over a bloody long period of time. I think we take this as an absolute given in certain fields of expertise. So if we happen to go under the knife, I think we readily assume that the surgeon has basically sacrificed his or her life to the cause of medicine and surgery. And so we trust them on that basis. We expect that of them. But when it comes to our own spiritual pursuits, we can be rather less generous with our own patients, and for that matter, our sustained application. Because you see, these two are thoroughly connected. You cannot truly work for something lofty and difficult to accomplish if you lack patience. Because you will give up before you arrive anywhere near your goal. So the sense of patience here is really about allowing yourself the space and time to let your practice develop through time. 
because it is really only on this basis that you can make genuinely a considered judgment about its efficacy. So it's also connected to the epistemic tools of considered reflection and pragmatism. In other words, it represents at least part of the answer to that question I've raised a few times, how can I judge my progress once I'm underway? To judge a progress, you must first allow yourself sufficient time to develop. I think one of the most common errors that spiritual but not religious people make is abandoning a given path or technique before they've had sufficient time to develop through it. So the judgment, this is not working, this is not giving me what I wanted or what I hoped for, often comes far too hastily. And there can be rather a few of these wrapped around a person's history, like unwanted wrinkles on the forehead, the ghosts of hastily abandoned spiritual paths. Patience also implies being somewhat comfortable in the swamp, accepting the inherent complexity and uncertainty of the situation. You might say being able to tread water in the quest to move forward more directly. So it's okay to be uncertain, even about the things you may be deeply involved in. This is a good quality, and patience is a thing which really helps facilitate this. So it enables you to stick with a good thing, even though you might have some instinct to rush back to the sceptical fence. So, tool one, intellectual diligence. Tool two, patience. For tool three, I'm going to throw you some philosophy jargon. I'm calling it hermeneutical awareness. And to strip this of its jargon, I think we could translate it as something like being honest about the lens you use to interpret the world through. Seeing the nature of that lens. Seeing how it warps things, but also how it imbues them with meaning that is meaning for you alone. So hermeneutics is a very recent, largely 20th century movement in European philosophy. And it arose through the insight that when we engage with anything, from perceiving a lemon tree in the garden to reading a book by Goethe, we do so on the basis of our previous cultural and historical knowledge. So that is what we actually look through. That is, in part, what we actually see. And this means that instead of getting the lemon tree as it really is, or Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther as it really is, we instead get our own unique particular interpretation of it. An interpretation that is shaped by our unique past experiences, by the language we speak, by the culture we're from, and those sorts of things. Hermeneutics is especially relevant to textual inquiry, which is especially relevant to spiritual but not religious people who read spiritual books trying to find truth or meaning in them. And I suppose we could add, watching YouTube clips and listening to Arate House podcasts. I suggested in the first episode that if we're actually interested in a particular discipline or technique, we should go off and actually read the text. That was actually the very first tool of the series. And I used mindfulness as an example and then proceeded in the episode 
to read a little snippet of the Satipatthana Sutta, where the idea really comes from. Now, I didn't want to complicate things by throwing hermeneutics at you in the intro, but let me just unpack it very briefly right now. And here's the issue. I stated that the sutta is what the Buddha actually said about sati or smriti or mindfulness, which isn't really that controversial, except that the sutta was written in the language of Pali on the island of Sri Lanka. And as far as we know, the Buddha actually taught in the northern part of India using the local dialect called Magda. So, in fact, the sutta was actually written 500 years after the Buddha passed away in a different language and a different place. And then nearly two millennia later, it was translated into English, and then a century or so later, and a few translations after that, read by me, a 21st century Australian with rather a lot of philosophical baggage. And it was then heard by you. So hermeneutical awareness is simply being aware of all of this and then seeing how it shapes our interpretation in all sorts of ways. And actually the key point is not really about what the translators or the philosophers or the linguists have to say about the text and its authenticity. The key point is actually to become aware of the cultural horizons that we ourselves bring into the process of interpretation. So for many of us in this spiritual but not religious category, in the 21st century, in Western industrialized countries, the underlying premise of the sutta, and perhaps of Buddhism per se, is completely and totally alien to us. And this is a premise of endless rebirths, the chain of samsara, which is totally at odds in every way with our Judo-Christian heritage and following that, our deeply inculcated scientific materialism. And this very possibly explains why, when we think of mindfulness of body, we immediately think of athletes in the zone, or making a cup of tea with awareness, or doing the dishes with a kind of calm, tranquility and focus. Which is our cultural standpoint rather than contemplating our own rotting corpses, which is the ancient Indian Buddhist standpoint. Now, being aware of how our own cultural horizons shape our interpretation does not imply assuming that they are wrong and ought to be undone. But also, in the same breath, it does not imply assuming that they are right and ought to be unquestionably retained. Awareness of the process of interpretation should breed a kind of openness. It should loosen things which otherwise may remain fixed. Because there can be no transformation without opening to ideas which transform your particular interpretive horizon. And in fact this represents a very big part of what can actually be transformed about you. So when we're talking about opening your mind and getting some genuine transformations, this is really partly what we mean. Allowing yourself to be shaped 
through your interpretations. And this entails becoming aware of the process of interpretation itself. So that is hermeneutical awareness. It is actually, when you look at it closely, a beautiful gift. So three tools so far, intellectual diligence, patience, and hermeneutical awareness. The fourth is probably the most important and definitely the hardest to accomplish. And I'm also going to assert the hardest to sell on a podcast, even though these ones are free. It's learning about the discipline of epistemology itself, such that you can properly discern the status and quality and validity of the knowledge you seek and the understanding that you acquire. So what is this discipline of epistemology? It certainly sounds like more jargon, I'll grant you that. But really, when you look at it, it is, along with metaphysics and logic and ethics, one of the four major branches or roots of what we think of modern philosophy. It's that part of philosophy which deals with the fundamental question, how do we know what we know? What makes it true or good or valid knowledge? And let me be frank, it is rather a boring discipline. I've sort of tried to avoid it as much as I can. And I'm not proposing you need to enrol into a philosophy course and learn what Descartes and Dharmakirti have to say about knowledge. I think our task is a bit easier than that. I'm simply proposing that you learn the basics so you can distinguish between different kinds of knowledge claims and in particular to see how they may be grounded. So let me just state a few knowledge claims that might get thrown at you. You go off to a yoga class and your yoga teacher says, if you do these postures every day before dawn, your pranas will move into the central channel and then it'll be easy to enter into samadhi. Your psychologist says, if you practice mindfulness for 10 minutes twice a day in the office, you'll deal with stress much better and you'll become more balanced and happier. Your local New Age shopkeeper says, If you put the orange carnelian stone on your navel chakra, you will attract good energy and abundance into your life. Your favourite podcaster says, If you gain hermeneutical awareness, you'll develop more openness in your interpretations of things, and this is necessary for spiritual transformations. Your traditional Chinese doctor says, If you drink this herbal mix in the morning and this one at night, your allergies will definitely be resolved. And your traditional Western doctor says, look, the only way to clear up this inflamed skin is to use topical steroids. And so it goes on and on and on. We're greeted with all kinds of knowledge claims all the time. That's a swamp, right? So learning about the discipline of epistemology simply implies gaining some kind of understanding of where and how each of these knowledge claims may be grounded, if indeed they are at all, and therefore from your side, how plausible or believable the claims may be. So the scope of this is actually fairly neutral. It's not about shooting things down or rejecting them because they may be flimsy or are merely articles of faith or mere belief. It's about seeing quite clearly which things may be grounded in empirical evidence, which things may be grounded in reason or logical argumentation, 
which things may be grounded in a kind of pragmatic experience or the experience of a tradition more broadly, which things are kind of speculative, which things are grounded in the authority of a given teacher or their claimed or unclaimed level of insider realization, which things are not really grounded in anything at all. So actually the main point here is just to be able to learn how to organize and categorize different knowledge claims. So you can then have them kind of properly weighted. Um, you know, something on a spectrum from irrefutably true to, quote, probably fanciful but worth investigating to, at the end point, you know, this is straight up bullshit. And there's nothing necessarily permanent about this. In fact, I think it should be a fairly constant process of organization and reorganization as your understanding and experience and knowledge itself grows and matures. So it's really about organization, just being clear how things are grounded. And I think spiritual but not religious people can easily get quite deeply mixed up in this task. And because of that mix up, end up privileging what is either speculative or maybe even downright dangerously wrong and rejecting what is immutably true. And the cause of this kind of confusion is not having a very basic understanding of epistemology and therefore not being able to organize and categorize different kinds of knowledge claims. So it's very, very important to develop this and very, very dangerous not to. Okay, so I think at this stage, Swamp is not looking quite so perilous anymore. I'm going to offer one more tool, and it's a tool connected with the one I've just talked about, and I'm simply going to call it balance. And I mean by this, it's critical to always retain some kind of balance between two epistemic extremes. And the extremes are either being too naive and believing, or being too cautious and critical. Now let me say at the outset, it is extraordinarily difficult to find that balance and live kind of harmoniously within it. And that's okay, because it's not really about living perfectly in balance. We are humans, we're allowed to be a bit messy and inconsistent. In fact, aiming for consistency in your beliefs is probably a very sure road to dogmatism. So what is important then is to find those two endpoints, naivety and excessive caution, and to develop some kind of discernment to know when you're edging this way or that way on the pendulum. So let me explain a little about those two endpoints. Naivety is a state of ungrounded belief in a claim or a series of claims. You might say a willingness to suspend all of your doubts and just adopt these claims wholesale in an act of blind faith. Some people can happily believe the most extravagant of claims and earnestly pursue the most speculative of ideas. As I mentioned last episode, the human ability towards self-deception is itself extraordinary. It's very easy for us to believe all manner of things. We are imbued with robust imaginations and desires and hopes and fears and pride and above all, a very healthy dose of ignorance. 
And these can combine into the most fascinating concoctions of sheer delusion. I think we all probably see the most obvious examples here, which would include suicide bombers and white nationalist terrorists, cultists, those sorts of things. But it's much harder to notice our own deluded ideas. And I think almost all of us have these in one form or another. So, as a starting point, we have to recognise this as a basic human condition. That we are creatures who make meaning. But so often, it is a meaning generated out of those things I mentioned. Desires and hopes and fears and pride. So it's all too easy to self-deceive. Moreover, to open up to spiritual ideas implies opening up to ideas you do not have knowledge of and therefore might be very genuinely unable to discern the validity of. So often these ideas might come from a spiritual teacher or a guru figure who very possibly has good qualities which you admire and maybe wish to emulate. Or they may come from a sacred text or a tradition which has seemingly stood the test of time. Or you notice that a lot of other people have practiced whatever it is with good results and you want to emulate them. So to step into all of this probably does require sliding onto the naive end of the spectrum. You have to do this in order to be open to adopting new beliefs in the very first instance. And as I said before, that's fine, maybe necessary even. But here's the key, so long as you understand that that is what you are doing. If you're moving onto the naive side of the spectrum with intention and clarity, then it isn't really true naivety. It's actually much closer to that experimental attitude that I spoke about last episode. You're trying new things at the buffet. And maybe your plate is filled with new things, and you're willing to sit down and eat the lot, test them out. So, there are times when we have to try out new ideas. And this might entail moving from a position of balance into a more open-ended terrain. And quite possibly believing things which, in turn, turn out to be deceptive or untrue. And that's okay. It's okay if and only if you know that you are intentionally moving in that direction. That's what losing balance would be. The danger is losing the spectrum altogether and not knowing where the balance is and therefore adopting beliefs willy-nilly. Which is how suicide bombers are made. And also, quite frankly, a great many very well-intentioned but deeply misguided spiritual but not religious people. The other extreme here, or the other end of the pendulum, is excessive caution. This is like being on a seesaw with no one on the other side, so you remain stuck on the ground. Very, very safe. You can't fall off, nothing can harm you. But you ain't moving anywhere. You're not transforming anything, you're not encountering ideas that will potentially elevate and inspire you. Or you may be encountering those ideas, but your mode of relating to them is just shooting them down without even really looking at them. 
So it's like a video game where instead of shooting just the baddies and rescuing the goodies, you just shoot everything you see. So it's kind of an attitude of hostility and closed-mindedness, which might look like skepticism, but actually is nothing like it. True skepticism in its philosophical sense, which we spoke about last episode, is actually very open and engaged. Whereas a person on the cautious seesaw is closed and uses that closure as a method of disengaging. Now, this excessive kind of caution is usually grounded in kind of strong intellectual qualities. It's maybe a certain kind of fidelity to reason but not the open Socratic kind, which might change through dialogue or a good argument. It's a kind of reason that can only criticise, can only find fault, can only reject, can only hold on to and preserve its views and beliefs, rather than ever truly reflecting on them and opening to new ones. So it's reason like a cocoon, a veneer of cynicism that is worn like an ugly but comfortable old grey jumper. And it is prickly and defensive. So this is a rather grouchy standpoint. If the naive end of the spectrum is California, bright and sunny, idealist and quinoa, too optimistic you might say, the cautious end is northern England in the winter, defensive to the bitter end, rainy and grey. Now, there are surely times when you really do have to wander there. It's good to be cautious about ideas and knowledge claims. Philosophers really earn their keep on that unmoving seesaw. They just sit there and critique. And actually, if you're getting paid for it, it can be rather fun. And at the spiritual buffet table in the 21st century, let's be honest, it really is a bit of a free-for-all. And sometimes the best response is to fold your arms across your chest and just say, come on, really? That's bullshit. So being cautious and closed is fine. But again, if and only if you can discern that that is indeed what you're doing, that that is your posture, that you're intentionally wandering to that side of the spectrum and plonking firmly down on that side of the seesaw. If you, know, if you know you're doing that, then you're not in danger of being stuck there. So, the point really is that if you know where the balance is between those two extremes, then you can actually venture to a place that is a bit off balance, without really being harmed by it. That's the key to this fifth tool of balance. And that's my last offering for this episode. So I suppose I'm really saying, if you put them all together, it is indeed possible to get out of the swamp of uncertainty, if you have some or all of these tools ready to deploy. These are all roughly tools connected with knowledge. And the deeper point is that often in spiritual but not religious life, acquiring and evaluating knowledge is deeply undervalued. Sometimes there can be quite robust anti-intellectual sentiments in modern spiritual outlooks, coupled with a kind of proposition that knowledge is actually a problem, something that may hinder or harm your spiritual progress. So there's often an implicit sense where we expect doctors or economists 
or scientists to forge good knowledge and to think about how that knowledge is acquired. But we're too quick, I think, to trade that away in our spiritual lives on the basis that other qualities may be important, like being in the moment or suspending discriminating thought, something of that nature. And I'm really saying quite firmly, any other good quality arises on the basis of cultivating some genuine knowledge and understanding and reflecting on how that knowledge is acquired. So maybe I'm inclined to say that this is actually the root of any good path. Intellectual diligence, patience, hermeneutical awareness, basic insight into the discipline of epistemology and balance between excessive naivety and caution are all essential tools that anyone can cultivate and utilise. They're not just for philosophers or scholars. They are for anyone who wants to walk the walk instead of talking the talk. If you want to walk the walk, these are your shoes. To quote Shantideva, the great Indian master of bodhicitta, if the whole world is covered in thorns, you could either attempt to put leather over the whole world, or just put leather on the soles of your feet. And I'm saying these tools are your leather. They will protect you from the endless thorns of deception and open you to the boundless skies of humanity's wisdom. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au. Salt in the sea